Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? 
And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In my family, there's a phrase we use with our kids. Uh, the phrase is, don't lawyer me. Don't lawyer me. Don't lawyer, don't lawyer me means just do what I'm asking you to do without qualifying your disobedience on a technicality. You said I couldn't watch TV, but you didn't say I couldn't watch a show on my iPad. You said I couldn't hit my sister, not that I couldn't kick my sister, right? Anybody else have kids like this? Was anybody else the reason your parents had to say, don't lawyer me? <laughs> don't lawyer me. If I could sum up what Danielle just read for us with a phrase, it might be, don't lawyer me. In these verses, Jesus is teaching his followers what it means to follow God's law. And he basically says, don't lawyer me. Just love God, love people, and the rest will work itself out. See, talking about how to live out God's laws was a really common practice of rabbis in the time of Jesus. It was one of their main jobs. They would sit around and discuss exactly how they should live out the laws that were passed on to them in the Torah. In many ways, their conversations were just like the conversations we have in our journey groups. A lot of us are using a discovery Bible study method in our journey groups right now, where we sit and look at God's word and listen to what God is saying to us about how we should live out what the word of God says. That's the goal. And the Jewish word for these conversations about living out God's law is halakha. So halakha means the way. So these conversations, these halakha, we're talking about the way to live according to God's law. And in first century Judaism, just like right now in 21st century Christianity, different groups of rabbis thought different things about the right way to live out God's law. These groups were split into sects that believed different things. The two main sects of Judaism at the time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in some ways, those two groups were a lot like the many denominations of Christianity we have today. Catholic, Methodist, Lutheran, non-denominational Christian churches like us. We're all Christians. We all want to follow God's word. We all believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We want to live according to his instructions. We just have different ideas of exactly how that should work. So Jesus steps into this world where there were different ways of interpreting God's law. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives his halakha, his interpretation of how to live out God's laws. But what's interesting about Jesus' halakha in these verses is that he doesn't cite any other rabbis. He doesn't mention any rabbinical tradition. He simply says, you have heard this, but I say this. Now, this is notable because a lot of the time these halakha, these halakhic conversations, they sounded like a lawyer in court who's arguing based on maybe case law, previous similar situations, or arguing that because this happened in this case, this is what we should do here. But Jesus doesn't do that. In this passage, Jesus is setting himself up as the authority. He doesn't need authority from other people. He doesn't need the backup of rabbinical tradition. He sets himself over and above earthly tradition, earthly authority, and simply tells the people what he says it means to obey God's law. This is Matthew's way of reminding us that Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. 
Jesus is nothing less than the incarnate Son of God. So he has the authority to interpret his law. So the passage that we just read today, it was a long passage, but it's basically a thesis statement with then six supporting examples. So in verses 17 through 20, Jesus gives his big idea. And then in the following 27 verses, there's six examples of what that big idea looks like lived out. So let's kind of dive in first at that big idea in verses 17 through 20, and then we'll see how it plays out through the rest of the chapter. Verses 17 through 20 say, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So throughout Jesus' ministry, we're going to see in the book of Matthew that the religious people, the most religious, pious people of the day, often accuse Jesus of not following God's law. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He eats dinner with sinners. He touches diseased people. And so here, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus wants to make it perfectly clear. He has not come to do away with God's perfect law. He's not come to say that it doesn't matter if we live according to what God says or not. Instead, he says, I have not come to abolish them, the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, if we think back five or six weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' baptism, right? And at Jesus' baptism, he said that he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And in that context, we said that fulfill all righteousness meant to perfectly obey everything God says. And so here, Jesus is saying again that he has come to perfectly obey everything that God has said. All of God's law, he's come to perfectly obey, to do it all perfectly. Something no one else has been able to do, something people have failed at over and over. He is coming to do it perfectly. He is coming to show us how it's supposed to look. In the following verses, as he talks about how the least of God's law is going to remain until heaven and earth pass away and how we need to teach all of God's law, Jesus is saying, listen, God gave you the law for a purpose. The reason that we have the law in the Old Testament is because God wants you to live in a way that is peaceful and just. What God says about how his people should live matters. It is necessary for us to have a good and beautiful world. So Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to get rid of all that. I'm here to show you how it's done. And Jesus' big idea in these six verses and in the six examples that follow is this. God's people desire to do God's will, no matter what. God's people desire, want to do what God wants, no matter what, no matter how hard it is, no matter what it asks of them. People who love God want what God wants. So for Matthew, 
the Torah and the prophets that Jesus said he's not come to do away with, but to fulfill, the Torah and the prophets to Matthew represent God's will, God's plan, his design for humankind. And so Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill all of that. And if you love God too, if you're one of God's people, you'll want to do what God says. You'll want to bring about God's will because you know it leads to a good and beautiful and peaceful and just world. And so you will want what God wants no matter what. Remember, Matthew was written as a discipleship manual for the early church. Right? And as we've been working through the book of Matthew, we've defined a disciple as someone who is following Jesus someone who's being transformed by Jesus, and someone who is committed to the mission of Jesus. So Matthew's word here for disciples of Jesus is that disciples of Jesus want to do God's will. Jesus came to do God's will. That was his mission. And if we're going to be committed to the mission of Jesus, then that's what we're going to do too. We're going to obey God. We want to do what God says is best. We want to strive with all our might to make earth look more like heaven. Jesus says that true righteousness is about having a heart that is completely sold out to God and his plans for the world. And Jesus sets this way of submitting to God's will over and against that of some of the most religious people of his day. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus seems to be saying, look, these guys are trying really hard to follow God's law, but it isn't really because they want to obey God as much as it is that they want to be right. They've worked really hard to look righteous on the outside, but they don't love God. They don't love people. They've disconnected from the purpose of the law to create a good and beautiful and just world. They've disconnected from that purpose, and now they've just fallen in love with following the rules. And that is not what life in God's kingdom is all about. Listen, Jesus loves the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Yes, his harshest criticism in the Gospels is for super religious people. But he also, Jesus, eats with them. He talks to them. He invites them in to experience the true life that God wants for them. Because Jesus knows that that approach to living out God's will is exhausting and impossible. Needing to always be right, always worrying about if we're messing up, trying to prove something to other people. That is no way to live. And so this invitation to a different kind of righteousness that Jesus is extending, it's for all us religious people too. It's an invitation for all of us who are obsessed with being right and following the rules and just trying not to get in trouble. This invitation is for us to a better way. What Jesus is inviting us to is to dwell in God's love for us and to love God in return so much that we are inspired and enabled to act on the outward side of ourselves in a way that invites in God's kingdom. Jesus is inviting us to a relationship with God that sounds like the author of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. What the psalmist knows, what we know, 
is that God's law, God's way, leads to a good and beautiful world, a peaceful world, a world where there is no more war, where there is no more relational strife, a good world. And this kind of love for God's will, for God's way, is really different than begrudging obedience just to not get in trouble and follow the rules. So that's what Jesus is talking about. God's people desire God's will no matter what. Because we know God, and we know what his will leads to. And then, in the next 27 verses, Jesus gives six different examples of what this heart-motivated, God-centered, full-of-love kind of righteous living looks like in practice. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retribution, love for enemies. And each of these six examples have a few things in common, the way they're written. In each example, you'll see Jesus quotes from the Torah. He quotes from the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So uh, that was a normal way, by the way, of working out halakha, right, figuring out how we're supposed to live. You quote the text, and then you explain it. And so in the first three examples, murder, adultery, divorce, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. And in the second three, about oaths, retribution, loving our enemies, Jesus quotes from Leviticus. So each example quotes from the Torah. The second thing that these six examples all have in common is that Jesus uses the phrase, I say. You have heard, but I say. Again, he's setting himself up as the authority. He's asserting his authority as God's son to interpret God's law. He doesn't say, just as this other rabbi said. He simply makes a pronouncement about how it's supposed to be. The third thing all these examples have in common is that Jesus quotes the law and then intensifies it. (laughs) Instead of just don't murder, don't even say anything rude about someone else. Instead of don't commit adultery, don't even entertain lustful thoughts about another person. So we're going to briefly walk through each of these sections and see what it has to say about God's people desiring God's will no matter what. In verses 21 to 26, Jesus expands the scope of the commandment not to murder. Jesus says not only is someone who actually takes someone's life murdering, but even a person who is angry at his brother will be judged just like a murderer. He names uh, two, he says if you call your brother raka or fool, he uses both of those. Those two words are pretty similar in their meaning. The word raka is like, you numbskull, and then fool is fool. So it's not that one is such a worse name than the other. He's just making a point that God cares how we think about and talk about other people as much as he cares if we physically harm them. He cares because both of those things, both our inward thoughts or our words or our actions, all of those things come from an outflow of an angry heart. Both speaking rudely to someone and murder, both of those things come from a heart that has neglected the dignity of the other person, neglected the image of God in the other person. Both our words and our actions towards other people should reflect a heart of compassion for other people who are made in God's image, other people who are loved by God. What kind of words are we using about people? How do they demonstrate our respect for other people, even people who we disagree with? 
You know, in our day, social media makes it really easy to use language that harms or disrespects because it's more difficult to see the humanity of the other person through a screen. So Jesus says that a meme that's insulting or demeaning to other people is just as bad as murder because both rude memes on social media and murder flow from a heart that has forgotten that every single person is made in God's image and loved by him. How are we using our words? How are our thoughts? And then in verses 27 to 30, Jesus talks about adultery. He speaks about the correlation between adultery and desire. He says, don't just follow the sixth commandment, don't commit adultery, follow the tenth commandment too. Don't covet. Don't let your thoughts run away with you. It isn't just your actions that matter, but your heart. God wants his people to have pure hearts. And Jesus is going to emphasize later in the book of Matthew that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The extreme suggestion he gives here, by the way, of gouging out an eye or cutting off your hand, those are hyperbole. They're hyperbole. They're, they're about how intently people of God want to pursue, pursue purity of heart. Right? God wants his people not to just not technically break his laws, but God wants people who will run away from the temptation to break laws. Like Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis, where he runs literally out of the house when he's tempted. Jesus is saying God's people know it is worth doing anything possible to avoid harming ourselves or others with our thoughts and our actions. Then in verses 31 and 32, Jesus talks about divorce. Jesus says, yes, technically, the law allows somebody to divorce their wife if they just give her a certificate of divorce. But Jesus is encouraging a more stringent idea on divorce. He's saying, okay, instead of just following the letter of the law and doing what you're supposed to do when you want to divorce, what if, hear me out, you don't divorce at all? (laughs) Unless it's absolutely necessary. Jesus restricting divorce to only instances of marital unfaithfulness was Jesus' way of challenging his listeners about how highly God views marriage. Marriage is a commitment to another person. It's not meant to be disposable. Jesus says, you know, it might be common for other people to divorce for lots of reasons, but Jesus says, fight for your marriage. God's people don't make promises and then break them. He says that disciples of Jesus, as much as it's up to them, will fight for their vows. And then in verse 33, Jesus talks about oaths. An oath in this day meant to invoke the name of a deity to give your speech credibility. Like saying nowadays, I swear, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on my life. It's a way of increasing the force of your statement's truth. Back then, it was customary. They wouldn't say God's name. They wouldn't say, I swear to God. They wouldn't say that. Instead, people would use some indirect way of referencing him, like, I swear on the temple, or swear on a holy day of some kind. This led to lots of conversations over which oaths were binding, like which things you could swear on and you have to do it, or which things you could swear on and like, well, at least it wasn't the temple, so that's okay. You don't really have to follow through on that. But Jesus is saying, listen, instead of being particular about what you swear an oath on, just don't swear oaths. Just say what you mean. Don't profane God by attaching his name to things recklessly. He says, don't swear by yourself because You have no control over things. That's what he's saying when he's saying you can't make one of your hairs turn white or black. Don't swear by yourself. That's nothing. You you don't control things. He says just be a person of your word. 
Deceit comes from the evil one. It is not a characteristic of God's people. Going back on your word or saying something you don't mean is lying. And people of God don't lie. So commit yourselves to unqualified truthfulness. As James says later in the New Testament, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then in verses 28 to 40, Jesus talks about retaliation. And the law basically said that whatever somebody does to someone, you know, they get to have that back. So like, if you accidentally killed your neighbor's sheep, you have to give them a sheep back. It's just fair. But Jesus knew, right, that if the heart behind this restitution principle was filled with violence, this kind of justice could easily become deformed. So Jesus says, instead of trying to continue like a cycle of violence, oh, they hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them, because that's what the law says, end the cycle of violence. Confront your perpetrator with a gesture of deep compassion. This isn't about accepting abuse, by the way. This is about refusing to retaliate out of a desire for revenge. Then finally, in verses 43 to 48, Jesus talks about love. Love for your enemies. So the law says, love your neighbor. And apparently, in Jesus' day, the phrase, and hate your enemies, had become attached to that command. <laughs> love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And Jesus says, you know what? I get it. <laughs> it is socially acceptable to hate your enemies, to try and get revenge, to speak poorly of those who've been hurtful to you. But Jesus says, how everybody else is acting is not your model. Your model is how God acts towards others. And he says, God is generous to good and evil. God is who we are called to imitate. And God shows mercy even to the undeserving. And aren't we all so thankful for that? God's generosity and benevolence toward everyone is our motivation to do the same. In each of these examples, Jesus is driving home his big idea. God's people desire to do God's will no matter what, whatever it requires. A couple weeks ago, uh, Nate Rubright preached about the Beatitudes. So in the Beatitudes, Jesus is setting up the norms of life in God's kingdom, what it's supposed to be like. These attitudes that should permeate all of our living as God's people. And in these verses today, Jesus is showing us what it looks like if we actually live out the Beatitudes. So God's looking for people who won't try to lawyer him and get away with what they want to do just because technically the law doesn't forbid it, even though they know what God wants for them. God wants people who are so bought into his vision for the world that even when it's hard, they do what he says. What God wants is people who are not just acting holy or people who are motivated by following rules. What God wants is people who are pure in heart. People who don't just do the right thing to avoid being punished, but people who actually hunger and thirst, who long for righteousness. People who know their true identity is in being a child of God. People who are grieved by injustice. People who show mercy. People who long for peace. People who are willing to live out the love and justice of God even when it costs them something. God is looking for people who value what he values. That's what these examples are about. They're extreme. 
It's extreme to say that thinking something rude is the same as murder. It's extreme to say, cut out your eye if it causes you to sin, to turn the other cheek, to offer to go two miles when only forced to go one, to stay married if at all possible, to love your enemies. But Jesus is saying people who are sold out to God's plan and to his will are, going, are willing to go to difficult lengths to obey him. So as we consider this passage, as we consider what Jesus is saying here, what is going on in our hearts? What is the posture of our heart towards God's way? Does your heart, like the psalmist, love God's law? Is your greatest desire to do whatever God wants you to do? Or do you sometimes find yourself thinking about doing the right thing more to just avoid punishment or to look good to others or to just be right? If you're honest this morning, are your desires at war with God's desires inside you? Well, if you're struggling to say that your heart really desires what God wants above all, all the time, I want you to know you're not alone. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. He says it's like there's a war inside of him between his desires and God's desires. He confesses that even when he wants to do what God wants, he finds himself pulled so easily back to sin. And this harbor is why we need Jesus. It's why we need Jesus, because only Jesus ever perfectly lived all of this out. Only Jesus fulfilled God's will perfectly. This is what Matthew's leading up to here. As he talks about what life should look like in God's kingdom, what the world would look like if we all lived according to God's law, Matthew is setting us up to ask the question, who in the world could do this? That's why there's six examples there. We can probably all see where we have failed in at least one, if not more, or maybe all, of these areas we talked about today. Who in the world can do this? And the only answer to that question is Jesus. And in Jesus' death and his resurrection, he took our sin. He took our inability to perfectly obey off of us and gave us a new shirt to put on that is his righteousness, his ability to perfectly obey. And now we're just living in the in-between, the already and the not yet, where we have been forgiven. We have been invited into this new life that Jesus wants. We have been invited to live in Jesus' perfect righteousness on our behalf. But we're still learning how to do that, and we will be until we reach the other side of the new heavens and new earth. In these next few moments, I want to give you some time to consider where your heart is. If you haven't made a decision yet to give God control of your life, to live according to what he says, maybe today's the day. Today's the day to say, God, I believe that what you want for the world, what you want for my life is better than my way. And I want you to take control of my life. I want to follow you. If you're really struggling to say that you delight in God's way, that you want his way over your own, confess that to him. We can be honest with Jesus. He knows anyway. Maybe you just need to ask him to help you see why his way is better. Maybe you don't see that yet. Ask him for help. He will help you. If you're struggling to live out God's way in your life, even though, like Paul, that's what you want, tell God about that. 
ask him about a situation maybe this week where you can practice doing what he wants. A situation where you can choose not to be angry or dwell on anger towards someone. A situation maybe where you're with your spouse where you can choose to fight for your marriage. A situation where maybe someone's harmed you and you can respond with an extravagant gift of generosity. Or maybe this week you can practice asking God what his will is in your life. What is your will for this decision in my job? What is your will for my family? What does your will require of me in this relationship? So let's spend some time now just in the quiet. And those thoughts you hear come into your head might be the Holy Spirit nudging you on something. Let's just ask God to show us what he wants to show us. And then when you're ready, you can come forward and receive communion, which are the physical reminders of the only one to ever perfectly fulfill God's will. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be a community that wants what you want, that runs hard after the world you want this world to look like. And we confess that we fall short so often. We confess that we are in desperate need of a Savior, in desperate need of forgiveness, in desperate need um, of the grace and the empowerment to live out your will here on earth as it is in heaven. We need your help. So this morning, God, will you speak to each of us? If some of us um, are burdened with guilt over things in our past, will you breathe words of forgiveness and love and grace? Help us experience fully the forgiveness that you worked for us at the cross. Some of us um, haven't turned our lives over to you. Will you, will you draw us in? Some of us don't quite see how your will, your way is the best. Will you show us? Will you help us see that? Will you help form our hearts into people that love your way, that love your will, that want to live how you want us to live so that we can build in this community here a little slice of heaven here on earth? In your powerful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.